Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are talking about how to fail at almost everything and still win big by Scott Adams, kind of the story of my life. About 18 months ago, we did Win Bigly by Scott Adams and we interviewed him uh, about that. That was his newest book. This book's, what, five or six years old and it's more sort of prescriptive life advice with a bit of his sort of story scattered through as to what he did along the way. He's the creator of Dilbert, the worldwide phenomenon comic and a whole bunch of other stuff that he tried and failed at. Mm. So, the title suggests he has had a crack at a lot of things and failed and it's not a story about misery from that failure. It's about what can come out of the ashes of, of certain failures. So, just a, a quick list of some of the things that he failed at and this isn't the complete list. You need to read the book for that. But he had a crack at a meditation guide. He tried to make two computer games. He did a psychic practice program. He did a goat offer. He had a phone company career. He did a, a crackpot website. He started videos on the internet before YouTube, uh, grocery home delivery, professional investing, a Calendly patent, keypad patent, um, Dill Burrito, two restaurants, and then finally at some stage he landed on Dilbert. So that one swing that actually connected after a whole bunch of strikeouts. So as Scott suggests, all these things along the way that didn't work out, they all taught him something. There was a lesson in every single thing and then each attempt he got better and better and better and then eventually he sort of landed on Dilbert. And Dilbert wasn't a thing where he sort of quit and went all in and just thought this is going to be the one that works. He actually did it on the side. You know, he'd wake up at 5 a.m., draw his comics whilst he was working at this company for over a decade while Dilbert was still building up until eventually he was able to to leave his job and focus full-time on Dilbert. He knew that the corporate career wasn't for him when he was there and, you know, this is what he did. So, he spent all his time just really um, having a swing at certain things on the weekend and if you really think about it, there is some kind of negative asymmetry in the positive direction in actually doing that. If you're doing that on the weekends, you got the upside of the learnings despite the little little failures he had. He had the upside of the chance of it actually working and a swing might connect like it did for Dilbert. And also, it just fills his life with a lot of hope and energy. There's something that you're working at on the weekend can really have, you know, be your, your home run to make you a success in the future. If you ask any successful person, they'll probably tell you all the things that led to their success. One thing we often overlook is luck and luck is a massive part of it. Uh, and there's really not much you can do to control luck. But what Scott's saying is if you're just hoping to get lucky, that's a pretty poor strategy. So this book is all about how do you focus on the elements that don't involve luck to put you in the best position to get lucky. You know, if you do all these things, maybe in a couple of decades, people will look back and say that you got lucky and that's probably a good place to be in. He says that, you know, Buffett says that if he was born any earlier or any later, his skills wouldn't have matched the opportunities at the time. You know, if Steve Jobs wasn't born with Steve Jobs' DNA and he didn't meet Steve Wozniak at the right time, there's no way we'd know who the hell Steve Jobs was. So there's a hell of a lot of luck involved, but this book, whilst it acknowledges the elements of luck, it says, hey, why don't you focus on things that are within your control, things that you can improve at, things that you can get better at, and uh, that's what this book is all about. So what we're going to be covering in this episode, we're going to be talking about passion and the dangers of it. We're going to be talking about deciding versus wanting, priorities, goals versus systems, and then something probably the book's most famous for, and that's skill stacking. Passion is bullshit. 
passion is bullshit. You'll often hear advice from successful people who are preaching the ideas of follow your passion. It sounds perfectly reasonable. It sounds like if you're passionate about something, you might have more energy, enthusiasm, you'd work harder. The ability to resist rejection and sort of high determination to work hard and then all these people who are passionate, they seem like they're more persuasive and all of this stuff sounds good in theory. Uh, But as we've covered in a lot of books and as Scott reminds us here, passion is actually bullshit. If you were an investor looking to put your money towards a certain type of person, for those reasons you pointed out, you might think someone with a lot of passion and drive, they can jump over hurdles much more so than, you know, someone who's, who's not passionate. But what Scott said was when he used to work at a bank, the boss said, those with the most experience said, never invest someone who is just following their passion. For example, if you've, got, if you've got a sports enthusiast who wants a loan to open a sports store, then you actually get to turn them down. If someone's opening a business for just following their passion like this, they're doing it for the wrong reasons and they're doing it for the enjoyment rather than the harsh business realities that they're going to be copying. Yeah, when Scott was a banker, the boss of the bank said the best people to loan to are the ones that sort of have no passion at all because they're the ones who just see an opportunity. They're looking at the numbers on the spreadsheet. They know what they need to do. They're willing to work hard. They're not doing it for things like passion and enjoyment. They're doing it because of the pure harsh business realities that this is a good idea that's probably going to work and they're a much better bet than someone who's got this wild dream who thinks it's going to be awesome but really they don't totally know what they're in for. So these people with these wild, wild dreams and the, the passion and everything, they're much more likely to take these big risks in pursuits of unlikely goals and not do the boring, mundane stuff that, you know, that it just churns out that a lot of businesses do. So you'd expect some of these passionate people to be huge successes, but also a lot more percentage in terms of failures. So there's a little bit of that survivorship bias again. You're probably hearing about those who followed their passion and were huge successes. But there's a huge, more, much greater percentage of people who failed on that path. And when we are looking for advice from successful people, they often look back at their story and they probably, you know, it's obviously a very complicated story and they also want to be somewhat humble. They're probably not going to go out there and say, oh, I'm just like significantly smarter than the average person or I just worked really, really hard. I was working 16 hours a day for the first eight years while I was building it up. They're probably going to go and say something like, I was really passionate. I was really enjoying what I was doing and it allowed me to work harder. So their sort of narrative when they look back and try to give people advice tends towards the things like passion because it seems like it's within reach. Everyone's sort of got a kind of passion. They're not going to say, I'm just really, really smart and I worked really, really hard because that's saying to someone else and maybe you couldn't do the same as me because you're not smart enough. So that's why they they tend to fall back on this passion idea as well, even though it's probably not uh, a clear picture of what made them successful. So we've ragged on passion a lot in to open this uh, this episode. The rest of the book really gives you the strategy the opposite strategy that is much more likely to get you to where you want to go. Managing your attitude. One of the best pieces of advice Scott Adams ever received was, if you want success, figure out the price and then pay it. It sounds really trivial and obvious, but if you unpack the idea, it's got a lot of power. If you think about most people, they really just wish or hope for things. You know, they might be wishing for a, a yacht and a, a castle with servants and, you know, the whole world just coming to them. But these are just simply mere wishes and they've got no practical utility 
any chance of that wish being fulfilled. The people who actually achieve the measure of success actually make decisions to get the things that they wish for. Once you decide, you take action. Wishing starts in the mind and it just stays in the mind. That's what it really boils down to is deciding versus wanting. Everybody wants stuff. Everybody wishes for stuff. Everybody hopes for stuff. But the successful people are the ones that decided to be successful. And Scott says that in deciding, what you're doing is you're acknowledging that there is a price to pay. Obviously, you're not just dreaming about things. You know that there's going to be some cost to you, some kind of investment that you need to make of time, money, energy, effort. And you're recognizing that and saying, yes, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make some sacrifices and I'm going to go for it. You know, those sacrifices, it might be it might be sacrificing going to parties in order to get good grades in school. That might be the thing that you decide that you want to do You might and you want to achieve. Or it might be putting off having kids in order to pursue a promotion at work, you know, working hard, building that career capital and taking a step up. Or it might mean taking some financial and business risks that could open you up to embarrassment or divorce or bankruptcy if they fail, but you're recognizing the cost of success and you're deciding that that's what you're going to go for. Yeah, it's a very subtle difference between the two, indecision and and hope. But it's yeah, acknowledging that there is a cost and you're fully aware of the cost and you're willing to pay whatever it takes to get to the, the, the upside of what the investment is. And a big part of this deciding versus wanting is what he calls managing your attitude. And you've probably heard attitude or mindset or outlook or perspective or any of these things. Scott calls it attitude. And he says that you need to have this right attitude as you're going in order to sort of keep you on this path that you've decided to work towards. One of the important aspects is putting a premium on success, no matter how big or small the thing is that you're doing. If you're someone who's playing Monopoly with four friends and, you know, don't see it as a trivial thing where you just let yourself lose, crush the opponents, (laughs) even if they're your best friends. That's what I do. Anyone who's played Monopoly with me before, I I take it very seriously and and play it to win. Or any... Or anything you anything you really do because once you taste the success of these little things, it leaves you wanting more and it really sets the expectation that you have within your brain for the bigger things that you'll be going for as well. Scott believes that small success in anything has this spillover effect. Once you taste uh, a bit of success, it makes you want to keep tasting that success and keep working towards it. So Scott suggests go out there and get really, really good at stuff that's pretty simple, pretty trivial and the only thing it requires this sort of practice and hard work. So as you say, Monopoly, if you've played Monopoly a shitload, you're going to be better than someone who hasn't played Monopoly that much. Same as any, you know, Connect Four, uh, which I was in Thailand and we got absolutely cleaned up by the Thai bar girls at Connect Four and they really? took all our money. Uh, but I, I got the app on my phone and practiced up so I could get, I'm really, I'm pretty bloody good at Connect Four. I've now. never versed you at Connect yeah. Four. <laughs> no, I'm pretty good. I'd, I'm very good. <laughs> Can you play chess? A chess, no. Nah, not worth the practice. But uh, so Scott went out there and got really good at these things and things like pool and he got good at tennis and he got good at Scrabble. There's all these things that all they took was practice because he said the only people that were better than him at these things were people who had wasted more time trying to get good at these useless things. But the upside was that having that little bit of success, being able to dominate your mates at Monopoly spills over into other areas of your life. You know, more important things you want to get better at and achieve that same level of success. Managing your priorities. The problem we have as humans is that we all want too many things. We want 
good health, financial freedom, sense of accomplishment, a great social life, love, sex, romance, recreation, travel, family, career, so much more. There are all these things that we all want and whilst we want to chase them, we need to recognize that it's not possible to have all of these things at once. So we need to get our priorities in order and choose which of these that we want to tackle. So you've got a limited amount of time and all kind of resources to direct it, all these all these things what we want. Um, so how the hell do you choose what to do? And there's a lot of different approaches and different books and everything, but Scott's got a really simple strategy or a way of doing it. It's simply just focusing on one metric only and that's your energy. If you focus on maximizing your personal energy, it allows you more time and opportunity to focus on all of the other things as well. So maximizing your personal energy means things like eating right, exercising, avoiding unnecessary stress, getting enough sleep. So all these small decisions that you make contribute to your energy and of course, the more energy you have, the more resources you have to tackle all of those other problems as well. So it means also having a life that makes you excited to get up and out of bed in the morning. One of the biggest decisions that we all have is like, what do you want to spend your 40 hours a week on and your work? One way using Scott's analogy, if your work isn't getting you out of bed and full of energy and you're, you're dreading your Monday morning, then in this process, then you're probably going to quit your job and choose something else that, that draws energy out of you. The important thing here is that obviously we all have the same amount of resources, but if you're low energy and if the things you're doing is sapping your energy, if you're sitting on the couch eating ice cream, you've got low energy, you're not going to get out there and get good health and financial freedom and accomplishment. Whereas if you make the right small choices that build your energy, it allows you to tackle those bigger things. And he says that you know once these things all add up together as well, if you're eating right and you're exercising, you're happier, uh, it improves your work because you've got more energy to uh, apply to that. It makes your job better, uh, makes your career better. Maybe you get a pay rise, maybe you're happy. When you get home, you're happier as well. So all of these things work together. So the small things about focusing on your energy allow you to have better energy to apply to the big things. It's like this positive feedback loop, like this snowball that all these things make you better and better and better and give you more and more and more energy. And we always love the person who walks in the room full of energy compared to the, the mundane boring person who's just low of energy just sucking it out of you you don't want to be around those kind of people it lifts the mood of the room makes everyone else feel better as a result of your experience and that's someone we all want to be we have a, a cafe that we always go to to prepare before <laughs> the before episodes we chose there's what four or five to choose from yeah and we chose it we called it the energy because just the staff there at bubbly young happy full of energy and it does make you feel good just being around that's it. right in the morning you you know you order your coffee and poof, you just get bounce this person full of energy and it's it's exciting and then these other ones there's this other cafe there which is full of old old raggly you know <laughs> run down people who just you just just gets you down no energy mate and it, it does rub off on you that's for sure Scott gives the example of waking up early. So he says that you should wake up early and get to work. For him, at 6 a.m., he's a creator, but at 2 p.m., he's a copier. He's saying that when he first gets up in the morning to create Dilbert, he's fresh off a night's sleep and he's able to have sort of original thoughts. Whereas if he was to put this off till later in the day, he's really just regurgitating all the things that he's seen around him, whether it was watching the news or the people he'd come into contact with, a whole bunch of things without even noticing. And so he says that if you wake up at you know early in the morning, you're probably going to get more done in the first couple of hours than most people get done in their full day. And that actually gives you a hell of a lot of energy. If you wake up, you know you've achieved something for the day, the rest of your day is going to be pretty phenomenal. Mm. Another way to get 
your energy up to peak levels is simply your posture and there you are you're sitting up it's exactly that it's your sitting position you know big tony robbins style have your chest out be in state if you're slouched down then it's going to be a drainer on your energy and there's been a lot of research to back this up we reviewed amy cuddy's book presence which really just shows how you can act yourself into a better way of thinking Another big one which I like about managing your energy is, is don't be an asshole. One of the best ways to pollute an environment and to drag down everyone's energy is by being an asshole. Mm. And uh, that's going to reflect badly on you. There's a, a few things he says that are uh, asshole behaviors that you need to avoid. So some of these include changing the subject to yourself, dominating conversations, bragging, cheating, lying, disagreeing with any suggestion, no matter how trivial using honesty as a justification for being an asshole uh, and just withholding simple favors or abandoning any sense of civil behavior such as smiling or saying hello. Mm. And yeah, assholes, I don't think they succeed, do they? Nah, they don't get, they don't get far. You can tell them. Yeah, some yeah. people at the, you know, at the top of organizations seem to have a fair bit of asshole about them. That's true. Maybe um, a bit of the shadow side coming mm. out, a bit of assertiveness. Mm. that's a bit of a sidetrack yeah. <laughs> but so don't we, be an asshole that's so a, don't that's be an, a, you don't want to be an asshole so this is all about priorities and and Scott looks at priorities like an archer would for three concentric circles in terms of what is your first second and third priority he says that the first one in the very center is just you because if you think about it if you ruin yourself you won't be able to do anything to do with any of your other priorities and you know, a lot of people might see that as being selfish, but really, you should be number one before anybody else. Yeah, certainly. You've got to focus on your energy and your health as a first priority. And then the second thing to focus on, the second priority is your economics, things like your job, your investments, your house. And again, Scott says that perhaps, you know, it might feel uncomfortable to put these uh, financial things ahead of uh, number three, which is family, friends, or lovers. But again, you sort of need to have these things in order for yourself first. Otherwise, you're going to become a burden on other people. And then the final rings are things like your local community, country, world, and all these kind of things. Some people might think it's, you know, those people are so selfish for putting themselves first. You're better off putting the environment and the world and the planet and all these external values uh, in front of you. But I think a good example to show exactly this is someone like Bill Gates at the very start of his career, he really just focused on himself and the economics of those two things. And conversely, in focusing on them too and being one of the most successful people of all time, he's contributed to the planet, which is the outer ring, more so than anybody else in the entire world. If you had someone maybe who puts the world as their first priority beforehand, maybe they won't put themselves in the position where they grow their own capacity to be able to actually become someone who becomes influential and effective in good outcomes for the world. So, it's a bit of a paradox there. I think if you think back to 12, 15 months ago when we did Jordan Peterson's book, he talked about the importance of you know making your bed. That sort of falls into the, the first category of focusing on you and your energy and focusing on you first rather than going out to the streets to protest to try and change the world. You know, Scott's archery targets here means you've got to start at the center. You can't possibly change the world until you've got yourself sorted out first. The importance of systems instead of goals. Scott Adam once, he was on a flight and he sat next to a businessman in his early 60s. The businessman said to him that he was the CEO of a huge company that made screws and he actually offered Scott some serious career advice. He said to Scott, whenever 
whenever I get a new job, I instantly start looking for a new, better job. And obviously, this is quite different to a lot of people. You know, we'd go seek a job and when the job's amazing, we stop there because we're satisfied and then that's it. And then we wait and then eventually you might get fired or you might move on or whatever, but then you you stop in the process. But the truth is, the chances are the best job for you won't be available at the exact moment that you're looking. If you only look when you want or need a new job, you're only looking for probably less than 5% of the time as opposed to being open the whole time. So what we're getting down to here is the difference between a system and a goal. So the system being someone who's constantly searching for a new job and the goal in this case is somebody who has the goal of just getting a job and then getting the finish line and then stopping there. What Scott says is that goals are for losers and because the thing with a goal is you've got a specific finish line in sight and the whole way until you get to that finish line, you're a loser. You're failing, failing, failing until that one single point in time where you achieve your goal, there's a success but then very quickly, you've either you've like lost the thing that was driving you forward towards you know, keeping you moving towards the goal or you just set a new goal and you become a loser again until you get to the achieving the next goal. Instead, the system allows you to always be a winner. Every time you take that action, the thing that you do on a regular consistent basis, you're winning. Hmm. Goal-orientated people exist in a state of nearly continuous failure that they hope will be temporary, but they keep going through continuous these continuous failure and then small wins when they achieve the goal. And systems are a different path forward. They're continuously positive because you're applying an absolute system to what you're doing and you succeed because you did exactly what you were supposed to do. By definition, a goal is some kind of specific single objective at some point in the future that either you're going to achieve or you're going to fail at achieving. And by definition, a system is something you do on a regular, consistent basis that is going to increase your odds of happiness in the long run. So, obviously, that one job was an example. It's not really uh, a specific advice for everybody, but it's just a good example to illustrate it. Perhaps another example is like dieting. A goal would be to lose 20 pounds. And every time until you get to 20 pounds, you're a loser. But a system would be eating a healthy dinner every single night. So that means every day you can win by eating a healthy dinner as opposed to just being feeling like an idiot, feeling like a loser until you achieve that goal of losing 20 pounds. And I think the person who gets to that 20 pounds at the very end, you know, you get that little bit of endorphin rush and then probably straight away you're back on the, on the Maccas yeah. and, and the burgers <laughs> and whatnot. Similar thing with exercise, you might have the goal of running a marathon compared to the system of going for a run every single day. In business, a goal would be making a million dollars, whereas a system would be coming up with new ideas for starting a business or improving an existing one. And an example a bit closer to home, you might have a podcast example of a goal, for example, of 1 million downloads or a top 10 ranking in iTunes or interviewing your idol. And, you know, these are goals in the future compared to a system of just simply recording a new episode every week. Yeah, or an example of like reading, a goal might be read 20 books in the year 2020, but instead a system would be read a page every single day. So I really love this advice. It goes against a lot of what the most conventional wisdom is and the big value in having goals. But I'm, af- I'm absolutely sold on this idea. You're better off having system, something habitually that you do every single day that's in the direction of something that you want as opposed to having a goal with a set finish line being a continuous failure. 
skill stacking. If you've got some kind of world-class talent for something, you probably know it already. You're either a top musician or a superstar sports person or you've got some kind of innate talent that makes you inherently better than everybody else. But that is not the type of person, I guess, that we are and it's not the type of person that Scott Adams is talking to in this book. Instead, what he's saying that you can best uh, manage your odds of success rather than by having one single talent which you're amazing in. Instead, combine a whole bunch of different talents that you're above averaging to make you really, really good at this weird intersection of stuff. It is the popular advice from Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hour rule and a lot of conventional and a lot of people take it as if you need to spend 10,000 hours on one thing but there might be but that 10,000 hours might be built up of you know three skills of 3,300 hours and then you know you end up being in a niche with that unique skill set that makes you actually the best in the world of that niche and this is really what Scott's advice is in the direction of. He's saying that good plus good is generally better than excellent. That's sort of like his mathematical formula. Like if you're good at two complementary things, that's better than being excellent at just one of those things. So every skill you acquire doubles your odds of of success. And the good part is you don't need to be world class. You don't need to be excellent. You can simply just be merely good at a skill for it to count in this formula. Yeah, obviously that uh, idea that a new skill doubles your odds of success is seems like a weird thing and it, it is just a nebulous thing, but it's a good idea to point you in the right direction. What Scott's saying, rather than viewing it as like a every skill is going to help you a little bit, that's not really inspiring. But if you think to yourself that every skill is going to double your odds of success, that's a pretty handy thing to drive you into acquiring new uh, complementary skills to enhance what you're already doing. Scott Adams, for example, he's someone who's good enough at drawing but not excellent He's got a good sense of humor, but not a very well-known comedian. He's got a good enough sense of business. He's got an MBA, but he's not really a CEO of a Fortune 500 or anything like that. He's good enough at business writing, but not world-class. And he's combined all these mediocre skills. And, you know, he's someone who's the only person in the world who can create what he creates. He calls himself like a big bowl of mediocre soup. But this mediocre soup has a lot of disproportionate value. Yeah, if you take any one of those things, it's not valuable at all. Like the sum of its parts as well is not very valuable. When you add the synergies and when you mix them all together in that soup, you uh, add a bit of zucchini in there, you add a bit of broccoli and mush it all up. It turns into a pretty tasty soup. Yeah, and uh, to take your analogy further, (laughs) there are some ingredients that anyone could put in their soup that can make the value of the soup go up exponentially. And Scott thinks that these are the skills that everybody should be focusing on, these specific skills that once stacked in, they make the soup um, three levels better. So if you're listening right now, no matter what you're doing, you can simply just start building your most productive soup by just focusing on the next list that we're about to go through. One of these uh, soup ingredients is public speaking. And it's something that we've talked a bit about on the podcast and we've done that the Dale Carnegie Stand and Deliver book about this. What Scott says that public speaking, it has this halo effect in that if people see you being a good public speaker, they just assume that you're good at a lot of other things. So Scott took the Dale Carnegie public speaking course. Warren Buffett credits the Dale Carnegie public speaking course as something that really, really uh, changes life in the, in the and sort of shaped the direction of his success. Because anything you do, if you're an accountant who's good at public speaking, if you're an engineer who's good at public speaking, if you're a banker who's good at public speaking, anything you do, if you can add public speaking as a, 
a proficient skill on top, you're going to improve your odds of success. Some people's super just consists of literally public speaking and maybe putting a PowerPoint together. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you see them hit the, the top the top levels, right? And they're probably completely incompetent in what they do. I'd almost certainly say they absolutely are some of these people. Because they've got this specific skill in their soup, they can justify ridiculously disproportionate value uh, or salaries and whatnot. Mate, my personal story of public speaking was I did an, an eight-week internship at a bank um, whilst I was still at uni, and this was they, you know, had a bunch of people who did these internships, and then uh, some of those people got offered their graduate program to join the bank on a full-time basis. And mate, I did absolutely nothing in those eight weeks. But on like the seventh week, I delivered a PowerPoint presentation that <laughs> recapped all the work I'd done, and just sort of said like where I was heading, and just because it was like a a decent enough talk that not many other uni students were able to deliver i got the got the job yeah. probably undeservedly so but absolutely yeah. undeservedly so. <laughs> <laughs> you're one of the worst employees they've ever had but they probably rated you as the most promising graduate yeah. <laughs> just because you know irrationally that you had this one thing that you could do so public speaking is a ripper that everybody should be really having a crack at um for scott adams it was dale carnegie for free, everybody out there can do Toastmasters. I did it for about about 12 months and then I got out. There's people who've been doing it for about 30, 40 years. You don't necessarily have to do to do that, but I do recommend it for at least a year to get over your jitters and, and being able to put this in your soup. So public speaking is a big one. Another big important one that he talks about that everybody can learn and improve and it's going to enhance what you're already doing is an understanding of psychology. So, it's a lot of the books we've done, things like Thinking Fast and Slow, things like Predictably Irrational, things like The Laws of Human Nature and Influence and a lot of these books that give you a taste of things like the cognitive biases of humans and it really is going to improve the way you look at people, the way you look at the world and the way you interact with others. If you've got a base level understanding of this, you're going to put yourself well and truly ahead of a lot of people who've got no idea about this. If your view of the world is that people use reason for their important decisions, you're really setting yourself up for a life of frustration and confusion because if you listen to any of our episodes on that, people are inherently really irrational and you're going to be continually uh, debating people and never really winning except in your own mind. Uh, if you understand the irrationality, then you can really you know, detach yourself from some of these moments. It goes as far as saying any of the, there's a whole range of biases, you know, at least 20, 30, 40, but each of these biases that you don't understand and don't know is probably going to cost you money and opportunities in the future. Definitely an important one to get an understanding of. Another big one that anybody and everybody should add to their repertoire is being above average at business writing. So, being able to write in a way that that people understand and people recognize as good writing is going to help you a lot. Obviously, you know, just things like as simple as writing emails up to as complicated as writing reports and things like that, having good writing ability is going to be very helpful. There's a few things that he suggests, just the way that you structure your sentences. I know he talks about like the sentence, the ball was hit by the boy is a worse sentence than the boy hit the ball. So obviously, you want it as short and punchy as possible and you want to have the focus of the the active part of the sentence at the start. So just like some small tips like that, that it's just worth investing you know, 100 hours in taking a business writing course and practicing your business writing. Another one that definitely every single person, no matter who you are and what your job is, that you can benefit in a very big way from is simply conversation. And again, he leans on Dale Carnegie's advice. We did, we read the and reviewed 
how to win friends and influence people. And there's a simple method. You simply need to ask questions of the other person until you find a mutual interest. So find the thing from the other person that you're interested in about them, focus on that, and then through the process of the conversation, make them feel important and let them speak most of the time. One I find interesting is a sense of design and the way that you present your work. Obviously, if you do really good work, but then you slap it together in a 1997 PowerPoint template, it's going to look shit ass. If you have some nice, clean, simple design that makes it look good, people just assume that your work is good compared to if it looks like a dog's breakfast, they're going to think that your work sucks as well. So just being able to, you don't have to be a world-class designer, but if you've got just a, a simple enough aesthetic look to your work, it's going to be perceived a lot more strongly. Yeah, that's got a huge leverage that you know I, I probably don't put enough thought into as well. You know, you might do work for three to four months on on something on a report, and then you might just slap up the report in a day or something. Uh, you should put all your disproportionate amount of effort into making that look look as pretty as possible. Because the people you pass that on to, they don't see the four months that you did; they only just see this document that you've you've just whipped up. Another really interesting one he says is simply golf. There's an old cliche that business gets done on the golf course and it, it, I think it is the case. A lot of business people and it is a great way to network and you do see a lot of people playing golf and there's a semi-business context. It's they're, they're, They've got a business relationship but then on the golf course, it's not about business but you're really developing a deep rapport and a network and I'd say typically it's kind of the more upper class people who have the opportunities to give you who are the golfers. So if you're someone who can say yes when they invite you to the golf course, then this is another good skill to have. Yeah, and again, you don't need to be world-class. You don't need to be entering tournaments, but you need to have this basic level that you're not uh, detracting from the golf day. You need to be able to hit it straight enough that that you don't embarrass yourself. I think you can sort of extrapolate this to a few other things as well, maybe like squash or tennis, or fishing, or some of these things, you just you don't need to be awesome at. You just need a basic level that you're not completely incompetent. Or you can just learn the skill just in time. If your, your business, <laughs> someone with an opportunity says in one month, let's go fishing, maybe every single day that month, just go fishing <laughs> <laughs> and figure it out. So that's the book. We covered just a subset of it. It goes a lot into about fitness and health and, and all of these kind of things. It kind of goes scattergun pretty wide and we've narrated the best things probably in the context of your career. He talks about things like affirmations as well that we skipped over and we obviously skipped out a lot of his bio and stuff. But I, I find him a pretty interesting dude and I really like his advice as well. And the main things that we spoke about here is that firstly, passion is bullshit. Secondly, you need to manage your attitude. Uh, thirdly, you need to get your priorities in order. Fourthly, the importance of having systems, not just goals. And then finally, the idea of skill stacking to combine a whole bunch of mediocre talents to turn into something really, really good. I think that's a, a big takeaway for everyone listening now. How, what are the skills that we went through that you can add to your soup to create a, the best soup that you can possibly give the world?